Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast of First Baptist Church of Huntersville. In this podcast, you will find our sermons from Sundays, as well as occasional episodes about the different aspects of community life here in our church family, and how we are trying to live into the kingdom of God together. We are grateful that you would take time to join us here in worship virtually, and if you'd like to connect with a pastor or just have some general questions about what life is like here at First Baptist, you can connect with us online at fbc-h.org connect. Uh, this is a free podcast and it will always be free, but if you feel led to contribute to this ministry and to what God is doing here in our community, you can do that also on our website at fbc-h.org give. Once again, we are super thankful that you would take time to check out this podcast. We pray and hope that it is meaningful for you. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you on this day. Amen. So 2020, sorry to say 2021, 2020 was a year that will live in infamy for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of which was just the disturbing events that were caught on camera, especially in the summer. Um, some that caught my attention were Ahmad Aubrey, his shooting in Georgia, one that didn't make quite as much news but still was significant, um, and I'm trying to remember his name off the top of my head, Christian Cooper, I think, in New York. And then finally, it really seemed to culminate um, with the killing of George Floyd. Uh, in, and I'm actually, was this, wasn't in Chicago, Minnesota, in Minnesota. I think all of us, I'm sure, agree that that was a terrible event. It was terrible to watch for those who watched it. And I think there was this sense of collective mourning. But for the fact that I thought that it were, I'm not sure if that's the right way of putting it, in spite of maybe is a better way of saying it, in spite of the fact that I did think it was quite awful, I'll be honest, it completely caught me by surprise when a week, four to seven days after the event, I had someone approach me and ask if we as a congregation planned on putting out a statement. Now there are a couple of things that you need to know about this request. The request was made by a member of our congregation. It was also made by a member of our congregation who is Latino and has Latino and Hispanic looking skin. The request was not made in any sort of way that was demanding or um, uh, confrontational. I think a, a better way of saying it, and this is the world according to me, right? This is how I interpreted the counter. Um, pleading. Are you all, and by you all, this person meant we, are we going to say something? And it just hadn't even crossed my mind. So I went to leadership council. We collectively agreed, as we had already agreed, that we were horrified by the event. That as always, in all of the things that we've always said, that we affirm the dignity of each human being made in the image of God, which for me was so assumed and so taken for granted of course we believed these things to be true. But the request had been made and it was needed. So 
I don't know if you remember or not, but back this summer, Leadership Council on behalf of First Baptist made, adopted, and published a statement. It was a reiteration of what this congregation has already collectively voted on before. Effectively, we took our missional mandate, um, kingdom concept, and those missional motives, if you'll remember from, I think it was October of 2018, that we had all voted on, collectively named and voted on. So Leadership Council felt good about sort of putting forward what the church had already said. Here is why, here is why I share this to open our thoughts and reflections and our biblical study together today. There were a couple of things that just struck me in that moment that continue to strike me today. And the first is, to be frank, I was surprised it came from our Hispanic congregation. The issue was being painted as black versus white, and in my mind, Latino didn't really enter the equation. But for this person, and I have learned since for others, there was something in that video that made them think of them. Something in that event that they felt a sense of commonality with emblematic of something that they had experienced, something that they had endured. And in order for them, even though their experience no doubt has to have been different in many ways, for them, in order for them to feel loved and cared for and heard, they needed their people to say something. And so we did. In that statement, which I noted um, or referenced, uh, we essentially restated our vision statements. Again, we've used lots of terminology to describe them, kingdom's concept, missional mandate, missional motives. And, and just to remind you, some of the language that we adopted as a church pre the summer of 2020 was that we really wanted to be a people who do a couple of things. One, that we connect, or rather, excuse me, cultivate. That's the word I want to use. That's the word we intentionally chose because cultivate requires work. That we cultivate community. And that we connect people with God and with one another. Other language we chose tearing down walls that divide us, which is an acknowledgement that there are walls that divide us, aren't there? <laughs> and that we want to proactively build bridges as one, um, I think it's humanity or community, each person made in the image of God. And in that flower, we named five areas, uh, gender, generations, um, income, languages, and race. And so we made our statement in the summer of 2020, and I tried to think to myself, how does one build bridges in the midst of something like this? How does one move beyond just saying it out loud, which I had learned was really important? 
How does one move beyond saying what we believe and know to be true about the dignity of every human being? How do we move from there to the work of cultivating community and building bridges? One of the things we did is that we hosted a book study. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to have a sermon series, right? A sermon series on race. I hope I don't need to say this, except for that I think I need to say this, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. I'm not preaching this sermon series out of a desire to bop anybody over the head. Just in case you're concerned that this is me coming at you, it isn't. What it is, is me having a firm belief and hope and desire that if, if there is any people group on the earth that ought to be able to contribute something hopeful and meaningful to the conversation, it really ought to be the church. And if it isn't, if Jesus' people have nothing to do, well, then we really, all hope really is lost, isn't it? So I want us together to think about what is the opportunity to be had? What are we being pulled toward? What is our ability uniquely as Jesus people to cultivate community, to tear down walls and build bridges, specifically today, although we have named other areas, the issue of race? So for today, Here's the main question I'm going to address, and it is, what does God have to say about race in the Bible? Like, what is race to God in as far as God is revealed in Scripture? And so I'm actually going to hit a variety of Scripture passages today, not just the two that were read previously, although we will get to them before the end of this sermon. But I'm actually going to start all the way back in Genesis in Genesis 1, we are told that the first human being is created and called Adam. It is the word we have for Adam slash human. Adam literally means human. God created a human. It is Hebrew from humankind. And Adam and Eve, now in, in the biblical story we get there, but it, at the moment of creation, Adam and Eve are neither Hebrew nor Egyptian. They're not white, and they're not black. They're not even Semitic. In fact, their own particular ethnicity is never even mentioned. Because the Bible is trying to stress that Adam and Eve are the mother and father of all ethnicities, all tribes and tongues. They are actually presented as sort of non-ethnic and non-national because they re represent all people. To read the passage itself, Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make Adam humankind in our likeness. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then we fast forward a little bit. And God chooses a man named Abraham. Abraham is considered to be the common ancestor of the Israelite people, the people chosen by God in the Old Testament. But whereas Abraham has a certain ethnic identity of sorts, uh, 
As the family of Abraham grows, his sons and grandsons and those who follow after marry Arameans, Canaanites, and Egyptians. It's like a whole smattering of types of people who create this family of God. It isn't until this family of Abraham exists. And by the way, I am getting a lot of this information or some of this information from an article which I, by a professor of um, Christian studies, and I can't remember else's title, from Washita Baptist University. I will send the link for those of you who want to know more. But only uh, after the Israelites spend about 400 years languishing in Egypt do they really become what is known as a culturally identifiable group. Prior to that, Abraham's sons, again, and grandsons, etc., they're, they're marrying interculturally, if you will. And so we do discover, when we get to Exodus, that there is a people group known as the Israelites, the Hebrew people. But here's something fascinating, which I have never noticed, is that when God delivers his people from Egypt and takes this group of humans out of Egypt and says, I'm going to make you my people and take you into the promised land. In Exodus 12:38, it says a group of um, a variety of people went out with them. Meaning that the descendants biologically of Abraham and a bunch of other people were delivered from Egypt and sent on their way to the promised land. Now at this particular time in Egypt's history, uh, there were numerous Cushites, which are basically black Africans, who were living at all levels of society. And in all likelihood, many of them were part of this ethnically diverse crowd that joined the Hebrew people and left Egypt to become collectively the people of God. In fact, Moses marries one of them. He marries a black African in Numbers 12 and is affirmed by God for it when some of his peers question him. And so even this first people group, those chosen by God, are ethnically diverse. What does any of this mean? And it may be that I'm just taking you on my own journey, and none of you all have ever thought or wondered these things. But it was... And I'm going to try and exercise humility here, which means I'm going to admit some kind of just things that I would, I wish I'd never thought these things, but I'm just going to say things out loud. It was a surprise to me when I learned that race is not a biological concept. Not that I thought a race was better than another, I just literally thought it was a scientific thing. I don't know if anybody else is willing to raise your hand that, like, African-American was, like, a literal thing, and, and white was a category, and Asian was a category. It wasn't until studying scripture did I realize those categories 
categories, the way we understand people, again, not necessarily that one is better than the other, but thinking that they're scientifically different is literally not true, nowhere to be found in the Bible, and also not in any way evidenced by our current studies. In fact, um, the divisions that we have created as humans based on the color of our skin are entirely arbitrary. They scan the gap, span the gamut, excuse me, um, a continuum of variation, and we have sort of arbitrarily plopped lines on this spectrum to decide who fits in what category, but the category themselves literally are not real. They did not and have not ever existed with God. Ethnicity, culture, yes. Category of human based on skin, made up human invention. This blew my mind. Perhaps it didn't blow yours, but I'd always thought there was something quote unquote real to that. So if there isn't something real, then why do we even have a concept such as race? Because this, is, this was actually the point that I wanted to make. The Bible doesn't. The Bible has all kinds of categories, um, Egyptians and um, uh, Jews and Gentiles, which we're going to get into in a little bit. But skin color does not happen to be one of them. It just isn't in there. So, so why do we? I started to say there are a lot of theories as to why. I'm not sure that there are. I think that's me just hedging a bit. Basically, the theory as to why is that it developed during colonization. So let me just go ahead and give you a little bit of additional uh, historical information. The word race used with reference to people was actually originally used to describe a group of people who have a common occupation. So you would talk about the race of plumbers and the race of blacksmiths. It's the first time the word race was ever used and this was in the 1500s. Uh, by mid-1500s, it actually then became a reference to a generation of people. So the race of millennials, and I've always thought they're their own, own weird bird anyway, right? It's supposed to be a joke. The race of Gen Xers, the race of boomers. It wasn't until about 1560 that it was used to describe a tribe or a nation, but even still then it had nothing to do with skin color because again, that was not a way in which people were categorized. It only started being used as a word that described groups of people based on the color of their skin when Various countries, and I'm sure there were lots of them, but I'm thinking of England and France and Spain and the Dutch, etc., started to colonize, not just in the Americas, also in India and in Australia, all sorts of places, and they wanted to begin owning other humans. Now, they'd always owned other humans. We see slavery in the Bible, but that slavery was not based on skin tone. And so when you colonize a country and you want to sort of take over the whole population, this is when race became developed. It is the way in which they justified certain skins were superior and therefore were justified in owning 
other skin. Now, let me toggle just a bit before I make the application that I want to from that point. Race as a category of human does not exist in scripture, but some things do, which I've already referenced. Some categories do. So what do we see in scripture? And this is where I bring us to our Ephesians passage, our Ephesians community, which is the entire audience addressed in the book of Ephesians is Christian. Now, meaning present tense, when Paul is writing to them, they are now Christian, but they used to be something different. And how does Paul divide their used to be? There are two categories, and the only two that counted in that society were Jew and Gentile. These were ethnic and cultural differences. They were not racial, because as we already know, there was some racial diversity within the Jewish people. It had nothing to do with skin tone, but everything to do with observation of the law and the commandments of Moses and the prophets. And so, I know we've already heard it read out loud, but I'm going to read it again because I want to pull specific things from this Ephesians passage, and I want it to be fresh in your memory. Here is what Paul says to those who are reading his letter. Beginning in verse 11, Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded in citizenship from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He goes on to write, verse 14, for he himself is our peace. This is Jesus who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create one, excuse me, I wanna make sure I get this right, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So here's just a couple of things that I want to draw to our attention. If my reading is correct, there is an ethnic slur which is included in this text, and it is the quote-unquote uncircumcised doesn't have the same connotations for us, but back then, it's what you said to someone if you wanted to make sure that they knew they were less than. It was a slur. And so, Paul is saying, you were formally called uncircumcised by those who call themselves, quote-unquote, the circumcision, which he immediately undercuts, which is done in the body by human hands, all right? So he downplays the 
physical characteristic which was the dividing or the defining difference between these two. Perhaps I am making too much of that, but I think there is something to be said that they had named a physical characteristic as what created two people groups, and Paul like totally throws it out the window. He goes on to say that God brings peace, again, dividing that hostility, which is just about the truest thing ever said, you know, when two people get together. They say when, when two Baptists get together, there are three opinions. I'd say when two humans get together, there's like at least seven disagreements. I don't know. I'm just making stuff up, right? But we have this way of conflicting with one another. And he says, God gets rid of this hostility by getting rid of the law, which is fascinating because that's the thing that made Jews think that they were special. In fact, God doesn't say, I'm gonna make a new people group out of you all by making the Gentiles like the Jews. He preaches to both groups. This is what it says um, in verse 17. He preached peace to you who were far away, which was the Gentiles, and he preached peace to those who were near, the Jews. Everybody had to have a come to Jesus moment. And so the way in which God made a new people was not by turning one people group into the other, but by bringing both of them closer to God. I think that's really significant. They became one, not because they, they became like each other, but somehow through Jesus, they became more like God, which meant everybody had to lay down some stuff, Jew and Gentile alike. Moving on to the next scripture, a point that I want to make before I move to that sort of application, the so what does any of this mean for us as Christians in 2021? Let me just briefly mention that picture that God paints of this new humanity. I mean, there's the humanity as it looks, as you and I um, both have the presence of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in our lives, and also we're still working out our salvation, right? Like we're not home yet. But there is a picture of what home looks like. In Revelation 7, 9, it's painted like this. John uh, says, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Now notice, it doesn't say anything about skin color. But it does preserve difference, doesn't it? They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and together they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, but somehow just by looking at them, not necessarily skin color or hearing them, they bring their uniqueness to the community that is the worshiping community of God. So now the so what, or at least my attempt to what I think it is that we can learn from this. We have both acknowledged 
or rather, I guess I'm trying to assert that race is imaginary, and yet it's also real and that we experience the effects of these categories, right? And so let me just put this question to you. Do you remember the first time you realized there was such a thing as race? Now, I'm not gonna have you raise hands, but I would like you to think about it. Can you, your earliest memory, when you realized there was this thing called race? I don't know if this is the first time I realized race was real, but it is the memory that is seared in my brain. And frankly, it's a fairly ridiculous one, but I can't, I can't shake it. I was about nine years old, and I was watching the television show Homefront. Does anybody remember Homefront? It was a, a, a television show in the late 90s, or excuse me, early 90s, um, late 80s maybe, about World War II America and I absolutely loved it. And so, I mean, it was about the home front, quote unquote. So you'd have the soldiers come and go, and also it was a lot about the women who were trying to keep their lives and their families and the factories together while the men were off at war. It was, I mean, I just loved everything about it. It was charming and homey, and they had great clothes. Um, and then in one particular episode, all I remember is one of the characters was an African-American soldier, and I cannot remember at all the circumstances, but I just remember he got beat up by a bunch of white guys on the edge of the street. And I just lost it. Nine-year-old me is sobbing on the rug in the living room because I, had, I, I didn't know that was a thing. So, you know, I'd asked my mother, why are they beating him up? She told me it's because he's black. And, and I, I mean, really, when I say I just had a, an emotional explosion, that probably isn't an overstatement. My mother was originally sympathetic, but there also was a point where she was kind of like, get a hold of yourself. Because one, it was a fictional storyline, and two, like all adults who've been around the sun or time or two, terrible things stop feeling quite as terrible once you get used to them, right? And in my pure reaction of a nine-year-old heart, I just thought, how can this be a thing? I'm going to share a couple more examples. I hope that you have thought about yours, but in case you haven't, let me share a couple more quickly because they do help make this last point. Dan Hill, who is a pastor and author of the book Wide Awake, um, talks about some common answers he gets when he's asked this question. Uh, he'll ask when he's talking to a group, um, describe the first encounter you remember having with race, and here's just a, here's just a couple of them. Um, one gentleman at his most recent uh, training talked about um, his first cross-cultural friendship. A Pakistani family moved into his neighborhood during his elementary school years, um, including a young boy who was his fast friends. The food they ate, the clothes they wore, the family dialect was just different than anything he'd experienced in his uh, white neighborhood and family. Not positive or negative, just the first time he realized there was such a thing as race. Another example um, is a, a young woman who describes the first time she saw a person of color 
preaching at her church. She was in seventh grade. And she not only noticed how different this preacher preached, he probably got a lot more amens than I ever do, thank you very much, but for the first time, seventh grade, it occurred to her, there are literally no other black people in this room. Or another participant described witnessing for the first time an overt act of prejudice. He was walking home from high school with a black friend and somebody pulled up next to him to ask if he was okay. Why? Because there's a white dude with a black dude. Surely the white guy must be in trouble. For the sake of not just ser this sermon, but for this series, and today's sermon in particular, I asked Paxton Reed the first time he remembers being aware of race. Paxton, for those of you who don't know, African-American man, pastor of North Lake Community Church, a primarily African-American congregation that met on our campus for period of years, probably, I think a decade, maybe longer, um, until they decided no longer to be a worshiping community together. I asked him this question, uh, and I recorded it, and if we are able, I would like for you to see just an excerpt of his answer here. Willing, because one of the things that I would love for people to hear is sort of your, your personal story, so to the extent that you're willing, when did you first become aware of race? as a concept, as a construct. Do you have that memory? Oh, I do, I do. Uh, I, would, I would say growing up, I grew up in Seattle, Washington, and, and to be honest with you, I'm gonna just be straight up honest with you. I, I growing up through middle school and um, even high school, I, I just never fully understood or grasped or maybe even consciously witnessed overt racism to me. So. I was on the, under the mindset that that race is, is a secondary thing in the sense of accomplishment. Like nothing can necessarily stop me, or or everybody is going to be judged by the by their the merit, and that's just the way life is. And so, it, it wasn't until I went to college and I I was recruited to play baseball um, there, and um, so there were three three incidents that that happened that formed my understanding of what. Races, um, races like uh, was the baseball team, and I'm going to give three points, and then I, I can expound on it. But it's it's three points. You're such my, a preacher. Yeah, I know. <laughs> three points um, was my uh, interaction with on the baseball team, and number two was the Rodney King um, uh, beating, and then third was surprisingly might seem funny, but it's it, but it was impactful. But was the the uh, state of Arizona's um, refusal to to, they struck down the Martin Luther King Day. They voted it down while I was in school. So those three things, it was the baseball team, um, Rodney King, and that, that Martin Luther King holiday that they didn't, they didn't. Um, so do you, do you mind to expound on those? Let me just yeah, tell, okay, let me tell great. you what, yeah. Um, well, the baseball team was, like I said, I was coming into school with the mindset that, you know, everybody should be judged by what they do. The concept of, being judged and being um, discriminated against because it was not a concept because I had not really experienced it growing up. Um, and so when I, when I got on the baseball team, uh, I, I gotta say, I was pretty good. Huh? Okay. <laughs> I, I believe it, that's all right. I was pretty good. And I began to notice that um, 
that I was the only, well, not noticed that, but I was the only African-American pe person on the team. Um, but then I realized that I, it didn't matter how well I was doing, that I began to see that others were, were, were giving more benefit of the doubt. And it, it really hit me hard um, because I, I realized that I could be the best but still not be able to advance simply because of the color of my skin. Um, and so the reality kind of set in with that. So that was my first really major kind of awakening about the race, racism, and, and me experiencing it personally. Um, Let me ask you a question then about that. Were you a Christian at that time? Uh, yes, I was. And so tell me how, how did you process that through the lens of faith? That was a, that's a good question. I, I was, I, I would guess I could move forward because of my, of my faith in a sense of not going into despair, of course, because of the foundation of Christ, but it was still a psychological and emotional blow. Right. Um, when that reality hits and when you see it. And um, so, because baseball was my love and I, and I just, you know, feel I couldn't um, achieve what I wanted to achieve because I felt there was a resistance there. And then of course other things happened from a racial standpoint, words and stuff that was said by players and then it just kind of, it just really hit me emotionally. But yeah, it, it was, my faith got me through, of course. Um, so, but it was still a, a, a huge eye opener right. for me at that time. Yeah. I'm about ready to make a generalization, which is always a bad idea. However, here's my observation that is no doubt not true in all cases and in every way. But what I notice is that for many white Christians, your very first experience with the concept of race is to learn about someone else's experience. I watched it on a television show. Another person who we mentioned, it was his friend who was profiled. Another person interacted with a Pakistani member of his community. It was the first time that they realized something other than me or my color or my culture or my experience exists or have a different experience than I do. For many or most people of color, their first experience is to learn it firsthand. And that's a big difference. I don't know how much can be made of that, and I don't want to over-make it. But I guess I do sort of want to make this statement you know, we were, we're looking at Ephesians, the Jews and the Gentiles and their experience of being other or treated a certain way. In some ways, I feel like there's something to be learned there. For those of us in this conversation, we, we come to racial awareness with a very different experience or mindset. We all know it's bad, but some of us feel it because it was done to us. And who we are and me and my color or my culture is somehow wrong. I 
I just think there is something to be learned here as Christians collectively, black and white and Latino and in between, we try to figure out how to get on the same page as it relates to race before we can have anything to offer to anybody else. Frankly, we have a lot to learn from each other. And God has to preach to both of us, right? We all know that race isn't real. And yet its reality affects some of us more than others. I don't even know if I'm getting this right or not. But perhaps there's something in that for you to spend some time chewing on this week. To close, I want to bring us back to Ephesians and that reminder that even though Paul is talking about um, hostility between two people groups, really, he's not talking about two types of people. He's talking about all people and God. The reconciliation that had to happen was between all of us and God. We were reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. In fact, verse 14, Paul spends the first three or four verses saying, you, 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 and then in verse 14, he switches to we. It stops being you and me to us. And what is that us? That Jesus is our peace. He has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Getting there is going to be work because we come from different places when it comes to this conversation. But the hope is that it's possible because of Jesus. Because Jesus became human, was obedient to death on the cross, and and offers resurrection and new life to us. Because he did those things, that vision and revelation, I believe it can be true. And that is a reason for hope. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you very much for the ways in which you continue to stretch us and grow us and help us to know that we are chosen and loved by you and accepted by God. So thank you that we are a part of your family and that we is a capital W, that all those who place their hope and their faith in Jesus Christ are part of your new humanity. Help us, God, show us how we can live into that new humanity, being reconciled to you and therefore to one another. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.